If you have a Bible this evening, I would encourage you to open it up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15 tonight. Um, it'll be a moment before I read the text, but 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 through 15. I would encourage you also to keep it open. We're going to try as, as best as I am able to follow um, Paul's words quite closely. Uh, but before we begin, let's Uh, Let me also pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we simply ask that you would help us as we open your word. Lord, I am wholly inadequate of my own, and so uh, we ask that by your spirit you would open the eyes of our hearts and that Paul's words would come alive, even as we know that your word is living and active and uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, we ask this of you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Albert Camus, I'm not sure if anybody here is familiar with him, but he was a famous French philosopher. He lived in the middle of the 20th century. He was incredibly brilliant. He was certainly not a Christian, but he was brilliant nonetheless. Uh, One of the youngest Nobel Prize winners in literature ever, and he wrote a book which was relatively popular, you may have heard of it, called The Myth of Sisyphus. And that was in part a retelling of the actual myth of Sisyphus, the famous um, Greek myth where a man was condemned by the gods to roll a huge boulder up to the top of the hill. But every time he made it to the top of the hill, the curse was that the boulder would roll all the way back down to the bottom. And so, and this this happened forever. This was his eternity, effectively making his work meaningless and his life worth nothing. He never accomplished anything. And Camus uh, tries to use that myth to make sense of life. And so one of the central questions of this book, which won a Nobel Prize, was that because life is so obviously meaningless, and this was the question of the book, is suicide legitimate? Is suicide legitimate? And interestingly, he actually ends up answering that question with no. Suicide is not necessarily legitimate. Um, And here's what he says. This is a direct quote. Sisyphus must struggle perpetually and without hope of success so long as he accepts that there is nothing more to life than this absurd struggle. Then he can find happiness in it. And thus a school of philosophy called absurdism came to be, trying to find meaning in the inherently meaningless. You're probably wondering why on earth I would choose to start a sermon on something like that, but it's because this philosophy, uh, that book, other related ideas that have come from it have proliferated on our university campuses for quite some time. This is a very common Philosophy 101 textbook. Uh, This idea of how, how do you find purpose in a world that exists by random chance and a person that exists by random biological processes. And now, some of you sitting here, this probably sounds absolutely ridiculous, and to an extent I agree, but uh, I trust that you will believe me when I say that for, for younger generations, this sort of macro-scale identity crisis is very real. And maybe if you personally have an experience, maybe you've seen it with your children, um, if they're in college, with your grandchildren, with nieces and nephews, or, or just coworkers and other people that you know. And um, I'm beginning... This, this sermon on Second Thessalonians with a sort of, kind of 
just oppressive deluge, just terrible thing to consider. Because in a lot of ways, it's how I imagine that our poor Thessalonian uh, recipients of this letter are feeling right now. If you're, we're kind of diving straight into the book of Second Thessalonians, which is not exactly a well-known New Testament epistle, but if you're familiar with Second Thessalonians, then all of the preceding verses, especially in chapter 2, have been an absolute whirlwind. And I have to imagine that our original audience, their heads are, are kind of spinning. And after, you know, the, the first part of Second Thessalonians 2 is famous for the, the man of lawlessness, for the activities of Satan in the world, for the great delusions that will come, and all sorts of things like that. And it's understandable, as Paul is so good at doing, that he, he anticipates what his readers need. And so he anticipates the sort of a deer-in-headlights look, or this fear, or the futility of his readers. And so he sets out to remind them of their great God, their great calling, and what I've, what I've titled this sermon, Our Gospel, to anchor them in what is coming to them. And that brings us to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm only going to read three verses, verses 13 through 15. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And as we work through this tonight, I want to pull out three things. Paul is essentially presenting the sum of the gospel in two verses, and then in that final verse is a call to stand firm. So in those first two verses, I want to break down our gospel, or the gospel that Paul is presenting. And I want to break it down into three parts. The past, the present, and the future. So it's our gospel in the past, our gospel in the present, and our gospel in the future. So in terms of the gospel past, Paul says two things. He says God chose you and God called you. So God chose you. In the middle of verse 13, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits fruits to be saved. And that word chose there is actually a relatively unique Greek word. And Paul, most, most are agreed, Paul is talking about the doctrine of election here, but he's not using the same Greek word that New Testament writers, including himself, usually do when they're talking about election. And this particular form of the word, it means to take for or to take to oneself, but it's in a sense of preference or desire. And multiple Multiple, multiple commentators liken it to a covenantal bond, or even some use the analogy of a wedding ceremony. It's a, it's a binding choice that's predicated on love and desired intimacy or attachment. And I'm not going to spend much time tonight um, sort of expounding the doctrine of election, but, but I think this really flies in the face of one of the common criticisms, at least I have heard, but the idea that it's impersonal that this idea of God called you is impersonal. It's almost like a, an accountant running numbers to maximize your tax return. It doesn't matter the path as long as you get the result you want. And now, of course, I acknowledge that's a 
shallow and very um, erroneous understanding of the doctrine of election. And, and verses like this show why. Your father loves you. Your heavenly father loves you. And he chose you as a people for his love. I mean, brothers, beloved by the Lord. And we so, I at least, so deeply fail to understand divine love so often. You know, on the one hand, you know, we can have this, or we, we can have or we can encounter this very watered down divine love, and we, we can isolate the famous passage, God is love. And, and you may hear things that say, our duty is to love all without question. There's no, there doesn't seem to be much substance behind it. But on the other hand, we can easily make too little of God's love. We, we can think that our own disobedience, our own failures, they, they turn fatherly affections to curses. But we don't react to our own children that way, do we? You know, there are times where, where my children are, are willfully disobedient, and I feel it at wit's, wit's end, but, but there is not a moment, and I'm sure any parent would agree, there's not a moment I wouldn't jump in front of a car for them. And Jesus even admits this in the Gospels while explaining the, the disparity between human fatherly love and God's fatherly love. And one of the Puritans described God's love as an ocean without shores or bottom. An ocean without shores or bottom. Beloved in Christ, your father's love is as boundless as he is. Your father's love is as expansive as he is. I mean, listen to, to Paul's great prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Oh, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now hear me carefully, especially if you, if you happen to be like me and you really, you, you really love, struggle to love yourself. And the idea that a holy God loves you is in and of itself a daily exercise of faith. Beloved, he loves you. And he chose you unto salvation, and that order is absolutely essential. You being cleaned up and made holy does not precede your father's love. Your father's love precedes your being made right with God. We have three children, um, five, three, and getting close to two now. And our youngest, Theodore, we call him Teddy, he's almost two now, um, and his story in and of itself is filled with, with grace upon grace. We, we believed that we had lost him early in pregnancy, and we had a follow-up appointment with the doctor to kind of verify next steps, and to our shock, there was a heartbeat. Um, we didn't know it was possible, but later there were even more complications. He was actually born um, so prematurely that we didn't have a name picked out for him yet. We didn't want to find out um, the gender and we had thought of a girl's name, but not a boy's name. So all of his initial paperwork from the hospital says, baby boy Cantrell. He didn't have a name yet. And now he's well, he's happy, he's healthy. He took us to the ER on Wednesday, but everything's fine. Um, but earlier this year, 
we uh, we were working on you know, the things you work on with a one-year-old who's kind of becoming a toddler, communication, some sign language, you know, repeat after me, um, just all of those normal things. And the way he learned to reciprocate I love you um, was by holding out his hand, and you would lean in, and he would pat you. And that, that's how he understood I love you. Um, and he, he learned to do this just of his own volition. And, and earlier this year, you would, you would occasionally look over, and he'd be making some kind of noise, and his hand would be up. And the, the expectation of him was that you would walk over, you would kind of get down on his level, and he would pat you on the head. And he would do that, and then he would go about whatever he was doing. He just needed to pause and say, I love you. But as you can imagine, where this could become a problem is at the dinner table. So when you're one, um, eating is a full-on sensory experience. Um, and especially earlier this year, when he was so little, um, I was the one, I would sit with him at dinner, I would fix his tray. Um, you know, it's kind of some time that I got with him in the evening. And inevitably, at some point, the hand would go up in the middle of dinner. Spaghetti sauce, crushed strawberries, applesauce, didn't matter. The hand would go up. Um, and it was really funny. When I, when I had used this illustration before, we had people at our house uh, shortly after, and it happened in the middle of dinner. And I was like, it's, it's a true story. It's not just a sermon illustration. Um, but the hand would go up. And you know, my love for him is so great that I, that I, I made a way. I, I ran, got a, got a wet paper towel. I cleaned him up. You know, I sat back down. I leaned over so he could pat, 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 and then go back to whatever he was doing beforehand. And, you know, but in order to have that embrace, it's utterly beholden on me to clean him up. But I don't love him anymore after wiping him down, and I didn't grow weary of wiping his hands every single time we sat down to eat. Beloved, your father loves you, and he chose you. But God chose the Thessalonians to be the first fruits. And there's a couple of ways to take that. Um, one is a specific reference to the Thessalonians. This is one of the earliest Gentile churches. Um, and their, their testimony and their perseverance and their clinging to the apostolic gospel will be used by God just in the storyline of history to engraft more and more believers. But I think there's also some more general or timeless truths to that. And one of the things that I think of, so, so first fruits obviously is a, a wonderful agricultural term, but one of the things that makes me think of or reminds me of is before I, I was full-time in ministry, I was actually a high school teacher. I have, my undergrad is in biology, and so I spent five years teaching biology and environmental science and other subjects um, in a public high school, and we actually had um, a vocabulary term. I'm not sure if anyone else would relate to this or not, but we had a, vota- a vocabulary term called ecological succession. And it's this phenomenon of environmental progress, if you will. And, and usually it's in the context of some sort of devastation. So it could be you clear the land yourself, or it could be a forest fire, or, I mean, insert anything that would desolate a land. And then seemingly out of nowhere, next year, you have small mosses or fungi growing where there was nothing. And then they die, and the, you know, the soil enriches, and next season you have the same thing, plus small little green plants. And those small little plants attract insects and maybe small animals, and then there's another cycle, but now it's more vigorous than the first, and now you start to get wildflowers and saplings, and those start to attract larger animals, and on and on and on, and until after generations, you have a thriving forest. 
And so, I don't know if you were to evaluate yourself on that scale where you would be. Maybe you're a first-generation believer, and the soil around you is hard and discouraging at times. Maybe you're a second or third or fourth generation believer, believer, and behind you is just a mighty oak forest to the testimony of God's grace in your life. Maybe your prayers and your witness, though they feel futile in the moment, are slowly being used by your heavenly Father to chip away the rocks and open the soil for his kingdom. But wherever you are in God's great tapestry of redemption, there is a moment in it where, as Paul says in his second past point, he called you through our gospel. God called you. It's a real moment in time. It's an Ebenezer to remember. Early in the storyline of the book of 1 Samuel, one of my favorite Old Testament books, Samuel erects an Ebenezer. He erects a monument saying, till now the Lord has helped us. It's a physical monument recalling divine intervention. And each person in this room, if you're a Christian, you have this to reflect on. You know, maybe you truly are a covenant child through and through, and you can never, by the astounding mercies of God, remember a day apart from him. Well, you can look to, to Ebenezer's, like um, your first communion or, or your baptism, depending on context there, um, communicates class and that moment of meeting with the elders, whatever it may be, there, there is a moment where your faith is no longer your parents and it becomes your own. There is a clear demarcation in your life where the gospel came alive. I personally remember it very clearly. I remember deep fear and terror at the holiness of God, the the reality and the depth of my sin when I was in college. And I remember everything in me in that moment leaping to Christ. It's not always like that. It's not always dramatic. Um, I love the testimony that C.S. Lewis describes about himself. Uh, He says, this is a the shorthand version, but he essentially says, one day in my 30s, I got on a bus, an atheist, and I later walked off that bus, a theist, and then later that day, or later, shortly after that, um, had a, a full or final conversion in his room. But at some point in the life of a believer, whether in utero, with their dying breath, or sometime in between, your heart, spiritually dead, beats for the first time. But Paul goes on to say, he called you through our gospel. We'll we'll end our passage this evening talking about sort of holding on to the traditions. And our gospel is certainly the kernel of the traditions of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul says in Romans, uh, this is Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, as a, not really as a summary of the gospel, but as part of the, the depths of the gospel, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, 
Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Listen to what Paul, Paul says about us. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us and we were reconciled. But to flesh out the picture even more, Christ, he didn't merely die, he was condemned. Our Savior didn't merely take our place in death, he was crushed under the wrath of divine justice that was marked for you and for me. Paul says in another place, for, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is a reconciliation at tremendous cost, and it's scattered all throughout the scriptures. This long and arduous road back into the presence of God. Uh, we're, we're working through the children's catechism right now with our, our children. We're still very early, we're in the early 20s, and we're, we're in the section talking about Adam and Eve um, and the covenant of life and breaking that covenant and what came next. And you see this even at that point in the storyline, Adam and Eve, they were, they were expelled from the garden and the regular presence of God because of sin. And then early in the Old Testament, there, there's a series of theophanies, of divinity appearing in disguise for brief periods. And there's a tabernacle. Um, there's this little mobile home, so to speak, so that the Lord can dwell with his people. Then after that, there's a temple, a, you know, a, a permanent, if you will, quote-unquote, dwelling place between God and man. And then, of course... In the New Testament, there is Jesus' earthly ministry, brief as it was. And you remember what happened when he died. That veil in the temple tore. I was going to say in a sense, but really in actuality, nullifying the separation between God and man. So early in Revelation, where this great cry goes out, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's our gospel. He chose you and he called you past. But now our gospel in the present. So the end of verse 13. To be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Our gospel is a Trinitarian gospel, is it not? The Father elects, the Son redeems, but the Spirit, it's the Spirit that binds it all together. And Jesus, when explaining this to his disciples, he calls the Spirit the helper. I love that word. He says that he will ask the Father to send the helper to be with us forever. The helper will teach you all things. The helper will bear witness about me. The helper will bear witness about Christ. The helper is with you. The helper is with us right now. Um, many, as you know, excellent books and treaties have been written about the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure I will add much to that tonight. But um, in the heart of Romans, chapters 7, 8, 9, sort of right, right in the middle of Romans, Paul is talking really about the same thing he is here, he just uses a significantly more amount of space to really flesh it out. But one of the things he says is that those whom he elected, those whom he predestined, the end result 
is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the trajectory that you're on. That's the trajectory that we are on by the power of the Holy Spirit, being conformed to the image of God. And in doing that, what I think I could say is the most vital piece of the Spirit's work or of the Helper's work is that the Helper, the Spirit, binds you to Christ. The Spirit unites you to Christ. It's how the gospel actually works. It's the engineering behind the application, if you will. John Calvin, um, summarizing his great section on union with Christ, he says that all of the benefits Christ won for us are of no use if we remain apart from him. Think of what Paul says. Um, All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Our own confessional documents, which we share, uh, when they talk about this life, the life in grace, the life we are living right now, uh, they say that this union by the Spirit is the first fruits of glory, which we'll get to in a minute, glory, but it's the first fruits of glory with Christ, whereby we enjoy the sense of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, and hope of glory. And of course, sanctification by the Spirit is a long and arduous journey full of pitfalls and setbacks and repentance and discipline and discipleship. And we often don't see it well in our own lives, and we may even be discouraged. It's like watching your kids grow. They, they look exactly the same, but suddenly none of their clothes fit anymore. You see them every day. So it appears like nothing may be changing, but nature is running its course. And so is the Spirit in your life, believer. So present, saved through sanctification by the Spirit, and then still in verse 13, belief in the truth. Paul is contrasting what God does and what man does. And this is not a complete soteriology or doctrine of salvation. It's, it's the gospel shrunk down to a two-verse exhortation. So uh, we're not going to get hung up tonight on what's being left out. But Paul is directly connecting belief in the truth with God chose you to be saved. It's inseparable. There is salvation nowhere else because there is truth nowhere else. And you know the words of our Savior, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, it is the core of the apostolic message. I enjoyed earlier this year working through the book of Acts with the college students I have over at Westminster. Um, but if you've, um, if you've read through the book of Acts recently, um, I don't say this as a joke, but if you've read through the book of Acts recently, it's kind of a repetitive book. Um, you, you have the, the same general thing happening over and over. Um, Peter or John or Paul go somewhere and they preach, and then you read their sermon, and they go somewhere else, and they preach, and you read their sermon, and they go somewhere else, and they preach, and you read their sermon, and that, that's the heart of the book. But Paul's reminding the Thessalonians of that same point. We brought you the truth that those of you whom the Father chose may be saved. I know this is a, a truncated in a little bit, um, doctrine of salvation and of sanctification. I, I know, at least I've heard, perhaps you have as well, uh, sometimes you hear that the, the sum total of sanctification is believing the gospel more and more, and I, I personally don't agree with that statement. It's not that simple. Sanctification is not merely knowing more. Um, it's not merely understanding the gospel better. It's, it's effort-filled. It's often messy, but I think what Paul's getting at is 
the truth of the gospel that we have heard reorients us back to the center, and it is what fuels us forward. And so I would encourage you, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Um, write it on your mirror if you have to. When we lived in Macon, Georgia, before we moved here, um, we had this old house with a really large bay window in the living room, and my wife would take window markers and write scripture verses right in the middle of our, our living room window. And it's just a beautiful encouragement. Um, preach the gospel to yourself every day. All right, so the past, the present, and then the future. The gospel, our gospel in the future. So this is verse 14. To this he called you, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you may obtain, that you may experience, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So contrary to what we started with, contrary to the secular retelling of the myth of Sisyphus, history does have an end point. We are moving to a consummation, and if you're in Christ, this is a part of it. But what does Paul mean? What's he saying here? Well, the first thing it means is that your, save, your Savior, Christian, is a complete Savior. There is no tiny shred of salvation from eternity to eternity that he has not secured in full. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that the Father chose you, what does he say? In Christ before the foundation of the world. I don't know who to attribute this quote to, but from eternity to eternity, believer, you have been in Christ on a trajectory to this glory Paul is referencing. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, a very famous chapter, um, Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Our, our own confessional documents, the, in this case the larger catechism, question 86, um, the, the Westminster Divines say, the communion in glory, so that's after this life, when our you know, Puritan and Reformed forefathers, when they taught about this, they described this current life that we are all living right now as life in grace, but the next life is life in glory. The communion in glory with Christ, this is what they say, that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. And it's with that future hope in front of us, the sum of the gospel, past, present, and future, that Paul closes our text tonight, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. So we've seen the gospel in the past. We've seen our gospel in the past, the present, and the future. And this, it, 
it localizes us, if you will. It gives every one of us a story. This, you matter. You have a place in this great tapestry, in this great drama of redemption. You, believer, will be physically present when the Lord Jesus Christ leads his ransom host to glory, to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And what you do matters. Whether you spend your days at home with small children or you teach middle school English or you design rockets or you're a student yourself right now, whatever it is, you know, it matters, contrary to what Albert Camus would say, because history is real. It has a real author. It has a real purpose. And you are a real part of it. So Paul... In 2 Thessalonians, he has this recurring point. Don't give up hope. The Thessalonian church was not in a great spot. So he has this recurring point. Don't give up hope. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. And first and foremost, that means the truths and the promises of our gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are not so unlike the church that Paul was writing to, the Thessalonians. The world is frightful around us. Um, Often we feel battered and weak and wholly inadequate. So Lord, even as tonight you, you open up before us our gospel, the gospel that we share together, Lord, I pray that you would write it even deeper on our hearts. Uh, that as we depart from here tonight, we would be refreshed in the spirit, but also our conviction would be strong. That we would seek to hold, hold to the traditions of the apostles, but not by our own might, heaven forbid, but by the might of the helper that you have sent us. And Lord, we need help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response.